Welcome to My Life Chassidah Supplied, episode 410. This program is dedicated in merit of Baruch bin Yomin ben Menucha Lena and Miriam Baschayasar Altois, Yukusil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Basli Bafarkash. It's dedicated by Pinchas Todris ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altois. 410. Well, we've just concluded a Shivasa Batamas Nitche. What does Shivasa Batamas Nitche mean? When the 17th of Tammuz comes out on Shabbos, so Shabbos, the power of Shabbos is stronger than the power of a fast day, except in two instances, Yom Kippur, and the same would be with Asara Betevis if it did come out on a Shabbos, which is a discussion for another time. But all other fast days, even Tishabov this year as well, will be on a Shabbos, is pushed off, Nitche pushed off to Sunday. So this has special significance, which we will discuss. So we've now just concluded the Nitche, that it is the 18th of Tammuz, the day after 17th of Tammuz, Shabbos, there was no fast, so we fasted today. So we will talk about the Chassidus applied to that. It's also, this week is also a Parshas, Pinchas. So we'll discuss Pinchas, the beginning of the three weeks, and some very fascinating and other interesting topics, mostly generated by your questions. I say mostly because the truth is it's almost all your questions, but sometimes it's adapted and in different versions of how we receive these questions, both orally and writing, mostly in writing. And this is a good opportunity to welcome and invite you all to write to, uh, you can submit your question completely anonymously. Nothing is taboo. Everything is allowed. Every question, no holds barred. Please write to go to chsidasupply.com. There's a form, a box where you can, a form that you can, you can um, submit your question. You'll also find there the archives of previous episodes, now 409 episodes, nine years of this program, yeah, as well as many other Hasidic resources. Okay, I'll also use this opportunity to invite you to my daily Hasidic I Am Base class every morning live, 9.30 a.m., and there you can find the Zoom and the YouTube where you can view that and participate or watch it later as well. Okay, now with that, let us go into Hasidic applied to 17th Tammuz Nitre. The few times I recall when the Rebbe Fabrengd on that Shabbos was always a Geheben Fabrengen. What does that mean? Every Fabrengen is an elevated one. But there was something special about when a Tonus was Nitre. Though I wasn't around or I was too, too young to remember, but there was a famous Fabrengen that went till I think 8 o'clock in the evening, Shabbos. Shivasa Batamas Nitre was Shabbos in Tovshen Chov Dalad. That Shabbos that Rebbe Fabreng, very profound topics, unbelievable, my Maimer Chassidus that the Rebbe said then, and other ideas that have been published already. And the Rebbe then took off the Gzeda, the decree that he made about drinking mashke. Bottom line, it was a transformative Shabbos in the literal sense of the word, because that's what Nitche really means. That the day, that would be a fast day, is Nitche is is Nitzchis pushed aside by Shabbos, that means Shabbos transforms it into a day of simcha, a day of joy. So the simcha, the simcha, the joy that comes from darkness is always greater than the joy that's there on its own. You appreciate the light that comes out of darkness, but more than just appreciate it, it's a deeper form of light. It's like the someone who went through suffering, God forbid, or difficulties, when they are redeemed from that, it's always in a more powerful, more intense way. Similar to the concept of a Balchuva, Bechelayatir, with more strength, because it came from a thirsty place, Somalchanavshi. So the thirst builds up and the passion is far deeper when he went because of the thirst that has come from the distance, has led to a far closer connection than there would be with or there no distance in the first place. So that's the essential theme in general of the three weeks, which we will shall discuss, but specifically. Um, toward Shivasa Batamas Nitche, and as I said, those at the end of the three weeks, Tishabov will be that. And there's a famous expression from the Reb Marash, Kivin de Itche Itche. Since it's pushed off, let it be pushed off forever with the coming of Mashiach, and we should never have to fast altogether. Because that's the ultimate goal. The Rambam in Halacha says, the end of Hilchas Tainis, he says, Yehofchu, quoting the Psukim from the prophets, 
he says, that these days, not only will they be eliminated, they'll be transformed. You may simcha to enjoy days of joy and celebration. Holidays. Why? Why is it not just eliminated? Remember, the reason for the fasting is because it's destruction of the temple. In the case of the 17th of Tammuz, the breaching of the wall of Jerusalem. That was besieged a while earlier before that. So once that's eliminated, why should, it be, why should we even have any memory of it? But there's no such thing in Kedusha, there's no such thing in godliness of something just there and that disappears. If it's not, if it's not negative, it means that it's been transformed to a positive. That's the ultimate goal. Hishapchem, chashech l'neheder. And merida l'miska, to transform darkness to light and bitterness to sweet. So therein lies itself a tremendous lesson. We all go through in our lives times and moments of darkness where we may feel despair, where we may feel alone, isolated, feel abandoned. And this can be times of, of hurt, of loss, of grief, of different traumas that we've experienced. Everyone has their experiences. So you can say one thing is you hope for it to be over and a light at the end of the tunnel and it's over. And it's a distant, path, a distant memory. But there's something far greater that you can actually redeem, you can actually free it and elevate the experience, that the experience itself becomes a springboard that propels you into a whole new level of growth, a whole new level of refinement. And that is when we finally redeem it. Because ultimately, if you, can, if you just eliminate it, then even though it's a distant memory, but it was there. Those moments of despair, those moments of darkness existed. And in Yiddishkeit, especially Apichsidis, we want to transform everything. We don't want to leave anything. Godliness is everywhere, even in darkness. And the only way you can see it is when that darkness leads to a greater strength, a greater power. Which is, in essence, what the Gula will be like. The future redemption is going to be such a great one, an eternal one, because it came after such a long and arduous and difficult Golas. The words, the famous words, Yididit Tzedechaliyah. The descent is in order to bring a greater ascent. Or Yisina'er Minacheshach. And the temple, the Beis Amidah Shashlishi, will be a permanent one. Godl Yehkoved Habayis Hazeh. Ha'achim, Marishen. So there's an interpretation. It's referring to the third temple. The second temple was greater than the, than the first, both in years and in size and so on. The third temple will be Migdashad Nekenyadech only because we went through the most difficult. And that which doesn't break you makes you stronger. Like Ashtar Sheyotzel of Irur, Ashtar, a contract that is challenged. Once it's challenged and upheld, you no longer can be ma'arad on it, you no longer can challenge it. So in a way, the challenge actually made the contract stronger. Had there been no challenge, it'd still be up. There'd be the potential, there'd be that risk. Maybe this contract will not be upheld. But once it's been challenged and it's withstood the challenge, then you know it has a strength that can never be broken. Similar to what the Ramban says about Neres Chanukah, the Neres of the Migdash, Neres Tomid, that burned constantly, a divine light, Ultimately, God forbid, was extinguished. It's one of the five things that happened in these days in the Shivasa Batamas and Tishabov. But Taneda Salolo, Chanukah flames, that came from what? From darkness, from Exeda, from decrees, from a challenge. Those flames never were extinguished. And Jews have been burning, lighting Chanukah flames ever since. So that's the strength, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. It's, it causes us to become indestructible because you actually build up an immunity to difficulties and that makes you stronger. If you didn't have the difficulty, you would never have built that strength among many different explanations. So the lesson in life is a powerful lesson, both that there is an end to any challenge and difficulty, but more important, not only an end, a redemption that transforms it. So even the past now becomes the catalyst for future growth. Those that sow and plant with tears, the very tears that were so sad become the raindrops, the drops of water that feed. That when you reap, you reap with joy. But how did it happen? 
through the growth that the tears brought you to. So this is a lesson in life to all of us. Obviously, we should all be blessed with a minimal amount of anguish or grief or loss or sadness. But as we enter the three weeks, and starting with Ashivat Avasar Batamas Nitche, the message is very clear. It's Nitche, it's pushed aside. There are things that are stronger than darkness. The light that came out of the darkness, that Shabbos transforms. Yes, because Mashiach is still not here, so we fast on the 18th of Tammuz. But it's a different type of fast because you know that there's a power that preceded it that overrode, overrides and overrode the, the darkness of the fast day. So that means that whatever was accomplished through fast, usually on Shabbos, Shabbos was accomplished through Shabbos, through meals. And now we finish the Shavasa Batamas Nitzchah with that power in mind, that power in our hands to deal with any challenge that comes your way. But of course, we all need each other. Sometimes difficult to access. A person that's been in fetters, bound up, tied up, you can't free yourself. You need someone else to help untie you. When you're in a pit, you need someone to throw you a life raft, a rope. So we need each other. We need mentors, mashpim, to help us in those darker moments, to help us in the, with our blind spots, to lift us. Not because we don't have the power, but we need others to help us discover, access that power. So that's what this day teaches us. And what we can also learn from the nitche, which was another question, what can we learn from the nitche? We learn the ability to push aside and ultimately transform even the darkest moments. Another question that came in regarding this is, is, hi, if Judaism doesn't believe in collective punishment and that children wouldn't, shouldn't die for the sins of their fathers, then why do we do tshuva for the sins of our fathers on the 17th of Tammuz, the 9th of Av, etc.? We should do tshuva for our sins, of course, but why for our ancestors, who we don't even know, should we fast and say slichus, etc.? So many different ways to answer this question. Let's maybe begin with the Maimah Chazan Yerushalmi. Says, Kol Deir, every generation that does not rebuild the Beis Amikdash, it's as it considered as if they destroyed it. What does that mean? We weren't there. The Beis Amikdash was destroyed almost 2,000 years ago due to sinas chinam, baseless hatred, yes, of our ancestors, but we're not at fault. We're here today. So, that, moreover, how could we say if you didn't rebuild it, it's as if you destroyed it? So, the answer is very simple. What is the Beis Amikdash? The Beis Amikdash, and why was it destroyed in the first place? The Beis Amikdash is the bridge. As, as Yaakov Avinu, the gate to heaven. It's a bridge between heaven and earth. Build for me a sanctuary. And I will reside, I will dwell among you. That is the purpose of all existence. The Beis Amikdash manifested, mirrored it, reflected that. So as soon as the people in a sense, banish God from their own lives through sinas chinam, as the Altarev explains in Tanya chapter 32, and more elaborate in Derech Mitzvah of the Mitzvah Tzedek and Avis Yisrael, Barcheinu Avinu Kolonu Ke'echad, God's blessings are with us when we're one, but when we, we break apart, God forbid, there's divisiveness. Then Shekinah has nowhere to be among us, Rishchanti B'Secham. So automatically, the consequence, cause and effect, is that the building can no longer stand. It was not punishment. It was cause and effect. That cause and effect continues till the Beis Amigdash Shashlishi is rebuilt. So today, even though we didn't physically, we weren't physically there, it was a different generation. But if we don't have the unity to draw down the Shekhinah in fulfilling the purpose, then it's as we banish the Shekhinah because we have that power. So we're not atoning only for the sins of the past. It's right now. It's a, the godly presence is concealed. And you and I have the power to change it by becoming united. As we connect, as he explains in Derkman Sesecha, it's like bringing a carbon. You, have to be, you can't be a balmum, you can't be handicapped. Since all the Jewish people are all one organism, so if you don't say, or you don't feel it before davening, how could you daven, which is like a carbon? You need everybody else because you need to be complete. So when we're not complete, that's what causes, essentially, the Churm Beis to continue. As soon as we complete, the Beis will be rebuilt. So that's the key answer to the question. This is not just about atoning for the past. It's for 
ourselves, because the past continues till this very day. Whatever happened then, now either we unfortunately, tragically, either perpetuate or we correct. In addition to the fact that all generations are part of one organism as well. We're all part of one thing. So when we fast on Shiva Sabatama, it's because we're part of those that came before us, as they are part of us. So that, I hope, answers the question and also makes it personal. It means we can do something about it. We're not victims. And we're not bystanders, for sure. Okay. How are the three weeks relevant today? Well, I spoke about it generally before the 17th of Tammuz, is, of course, the beginning of the three weeks. Another name for it is Ben Hamtsarim, between the straits, between the dire straits. Mitzarim means between the Mitzar. Mitzar is a narrow boundaries. The boundary of Shavasa Batamas and Tishabav, those two saddest days. So everything in between, those three, uh, three weeks, because they're exactly three weeks apart, and that's the period in time that we're now beginning to honor. And what are we honoring? Not just loss. We're remembering, of course, the greatness of having a Shekhinah, having the divine among us, experiencing transcendence in this material world. So ultimately, the relevance of the three weeks is essentially the relevance of all the challenges and difficulties. This is the time of year when we are reliving all challenges, just like on Pesach, we relieve the idea of Exodus, freeing ourselves from the inhibitions of Mitzrayim. And Rosh Hashanah, we are reliving the experience of renewal. And Yom Kippur, the sanctity. And on Sukkot's joy. So the same thing, the three weeks is the time of the year. The Jewish calendar is reflective of the cycles of life, the ups and downs and vicissitudes of life. So just like Mishanichnas Oder Marben Besimcha, or the expression is actually the other way around, and it's compared to when other enters, that is a high point, a time of joy, the month of Purim, transforming darkness into light. Now we enter a time of Mayatim Besimcha, of, that's the nine days, but it really begins even before that in the three weeks, and it only increases. Of course, Mashiach will come before, so it will all be transformed, and the more dark, the darker it is, the more light that emerges from it. So the relevance of this three weeks is really a part of our lives. It's to honor that aspect of when things are somewhat the ebb and flow, it's more of an ebb when the moon is beginning to recede, the moon is beginning to wane. And basically it's a reflection of the more down parts in our lives when things are set back or a difficulty or a challenge or anything that you would categorize as mitzvah feeling some form of distress, meitzar. But mina meitzar karasi ka, anani bar ka. When we call out from distress, from a narrow place, the response is expansive. Because ultimately, these days are meant, the purpose of it all is not just the introspection that's necessary when there's moments like that, darker moments. And not just going through it, but it's ultimately understanding the purpose is transformation to the greatest holidays. With that, let us go over to week of Pinchas. So the week, these three weeks, we read usually these chapters. Pinchas, Matas, Masse. Dvarim is always read before Shabbos, the Shabbos Chazen, before the Shabbos, before Tishabov. So we have these chapters, as the Shalom writes, that in them are hinted to ideas and concepts of the three weeks. So Pinchas begins, of course, where Babolak ended that Pinchas went in the act of zealousness, killed Zimri and, um, and Kizbi, and, and, and because of their des- desecrating God's name in public. And what do we read? That he's awarded Brisi Shalom, my covenant of peace. So the first obvious question is, for an act like that, it was a Kiddush Hashem, he, sacrificed, he, he literally spared and killed people who were desecrating God. But at the end of the day, well, how is covenant of peace, which sounds like the opposite of sparing anyone, even wicked people, if he did something and brought peace to people, then of course. So answer number one is because he did bring peace. He brought peace between God and the people that the rage, Kavyochel, 
that Zimri caused caused a a, a schism, a break where the where the godliness felt uncomfortable, so to speak, to be among the people after such desecration. Like someone being betrayed. The husband is betrayed. Pinchas came and brought peace back to the world by exposing these criminals as being who they were and being Shem Shemaim and with a zealous act. So what reward does he get? In addition, Pinchas was not an aggressive person. This is why it's most fascinating. If he was known like the Shevet Shimon, were known to be warriors, and they were aggressive, as we see in the story of Levi, Shimon and Levi in Shechem. And in general, we see Shimon as a warrior. Pinchas was not a warrior. He was a very, very, a very docile, very peaceful person. So you can understand when a person like that rises to sanctify God's name, it's not becoming because of his aggression. It's becoming because of his bitl, his utter selflessness and utter devotion to God. So when a man of peace stands up for what is right, that's not an act of aggression, that's an act of peace. Sometimes the peace manifests in actually being a peacemaker, where you come and bring two people together, and sometimes it's exposing or, uh, or, or the retribution necessary for those that disrupt or do criminal, criminal acts against God and against the people. So the lessons we learn from it that, that we can't become zealots this was something once in, in history. We have a due process. You see something wrong, you can't just go ahead and punish the people who've done it. First of all, we have to figure, know whether they deserve it. That needs to be brought to a court of law. Pinchas showed once that there's such, such a thing, because sometimes you do need that. But it has to be done with great caution and great care. Not everybody can make a decision. Oh, I see a crime. I'm going to be a zealot. I'll spare all the people that are involved. God forbid. And above all, to remember that when you discipline someone with the right love, not with anger, that too brings peace to the world. So what is the expression goes, that those that will be compassionate to the wicked will ultimately be cruel, to the, those that will be compassionate to the cruel will ultimately be cruel to the compassionate. So sometimes that's necessary. Withdrawing, retreating is not always the option. It's not always the response. Sometimes you have to stand up for what is right. And indeed, that brings the covenant, the Brisa Yisholem. Another question about Pinchas. If Hashem knows everything past, present, and future, why did he wait until the daughters of Tzlovchad complained about not having an inheritance before writing new inheritance laws into the Torah for them? Shouldn't Hashem have foreseen this issue and already had the laws in place before there was a problem? So when the issue arose... Everyone would know what to do. So this is the famous story, Bnei Slavchad. Slavchad passed away, didn't have any sons. And the Torah law to that point was that sons inherit. The daughters came and said, similar to what happened by Pesach Sheni. Why are we being deprived? And Moshe turns to God and God says, yes, grant them the power to inherit their father's land. So the obvious question is, what if God knew that that's a possibility, why does he have to wait for them to come and ask? And the answer lies in, that answer lies in the whole secret of our relationship with God. You can say the same thing about everything. If Mashiach is going to come anyway, what's the point of our work? Why do we need to do Torah and mitzvahs if, the, if it's going to, the world will end up being in the right place anyway? That's the partnership. God wants us to be partners, to take initiative. Does he give us the strength? Yes. But a partner means you taking an initiative. Like when we talked about shlach lecha anoshim, shlach lecha, ledaitacha. We knew what came out of it. Why did Hashem say that? Because we need to take initiative for us to be partners with God. There has to be an equal contribution. And look how beautiful the lesson, that when a person feels deprived, like in the story of Pesach Sheni, where you could ask exactly the same question. God couldn't have set up and know that there are some people who are bederech archeik or tmeya, they're distant or, or impure during be- when Pesach came, so they need a second chance to bring Pesach. But there's something when it comes to cry from below. Going back to the whole idea that from within, from within the darkness, something is transformed, which of course is the connection to the three weeks, the B'nai Slavchat. Okay.
So there's always more to talk about, but I have talked, discussed both Parsha Pinchas and the three weeks and the 17th of Tammuz in previous years, nine years of programming. You can imagine we went through many different topics. So it's easy to find by simply going to gachsidasupply.com. All previous episodes are there. You can also search for them by a keyword. In addition, the, all the topics are time-stamped, which means you can just go straight to the topic, click on it, if you look in the description under the video, and it'll take you straight to that part of the program. So you don't have to listen to 60 minutes. You can go and listen and go straight to where you want to hear whatever topic it is that, that fancies your interest. Or tickles your fancy, maybe the expression. Fine. Okay, let's move now to uh, astronomy, of all things. Yeah. So let's just lately, last a uh, little while, we have different astronomical findings, uh, telescopes that become more and more powerful. So there was new discoveries, new pictures by the James Webb Space Telescope. Remember the Hubble Telescope? That now is able to peer and look at things that we were unable to see with the naked eye for sure now, but even with great instruments. So the instruments get better and better. And whenever that happens, there are always more questions about the cosmos, about God, the mysteries of existence. And taking the cue from the Rebbe, the Rebbe would often talk about different events in science. I remember the Rebbe's talks when the man landed on the moon, 1969, and then again when the Rebbe spoke in 1973. It was often, interestingly, also correspondent to the Shabbos of Hapigisha. Those days, twice, two or three times a year, he would bring students, college students, to 770 for Shabbos, Spent Shabbos day with they go to the Fabring, the Rebbe would dedicate often a Sikha, and it was always connected to science, technology, every year something else. I remember one year in Tavshin Lamedhe, the Rebbe spoke about computer, the lessons of a computer. He also spoke about the eclipse. There was an eclipse then. He spoke about man landing on the moon, the space travel. So it was something, and everything that happens in this world is a lesson for us. So being that there's recently new discoveries, so I received a few questions. Maybe it's from the same person. Maybe it's different people. So let's talk about that for a moment. And of course, sometimes it rattles people because it, remember when the landing on the moon. So there was those that said, what, what, now what? When we makadish the Levona, once a month, when we uh, make a blessing of the moon, it says, Kishem, just as I am leaping here, may I, I cannot reach the moon. I can only take three leaps down on earth. I can't reach the moon. And now we reach the moon. There were those that wanted to change the prayer, and the Rebbe explained, no. It says, I can't reach the moon with my, my human jumps. But it doesn't say you can't technically build a technology that will reach the moon. So it also brings up questions of halacha and so on. The books already have been written. If you're on the moon, can you be Makadosh the moon? How could you be Makadosh the Levona? And in general, other laws that are subject to time as we know them on earth, so this is a whole discussion of its own. I'll just address a few questions that came up regarding the new telescopes that are seeing the vastness of the universe in ways that we never imagined even. So we'll talk about that. So it goes like this. How should we react to new astronomical discoveries? Well, a general answer is, like everything, it teaches us Magadlu Masach Hashem or Rabu Masach Hashem, the vastness the greatness, the multitude of God. As the Rambam says, how does a person come to love and revere God? Through contemplating on nature, on existence. So besides that, it teaches us every detail counts. It also teaches us the grand design. Chassidus talks about the the perpetuation of things, their consistency teaches you about it. The power of God to create something consistent. And on and on. Then there's the lessons from the details. Every petal, every flower petal, every star, every grain of sand has lessons for us in our personal lives. From my flesh I behold God, but also from the universe and every fiber of existence, every cell, every DNA because it's all created by the great cosmic artist and engineer, and reflecting God's brilliance, wisdom, and design. 
especially when it comes to a human being who was created in the divine image. So, that's a general attitude, and we take our lessons. But we shouldn't feel perturbed on the contrary. The same God that created everything, created all these elements in the universe, same God gave us the Torah. It's not two different realities. It's all part of one reality. But questions do come up, and here are a few of them. How big is the universe according to the Torah? So I want to, I'll read a few others, and you'll see how it all connects. In light of the James Webb Space Telescope image, which was recently published, what does the Torah say about all the trillions of galaxies in the sky? I'm not sure if it's trillions, but it's definitely a large number. Why did Hashem create them? It seems that Earth is then but a, a, but a puff of a speck in the universe with not much importance. Why would Hashem, why would God do that? A few more questions. The new telescope pictures seem to provide even more evidence that the world is billions of years old. What is your opinion about this? Is it possible that we made a mistake as to the world's age and that is more than just a few thousand years old? When the Torah compared the amount of sand and the stars by Avram, it seems that wasn't literal as there are far more stars than grains of sand by many factors. Perhaps it was just a metaphor. Can it be that the days of creation was also just a metaphor? Why doesn't the Torah discuss the trillions of galaxies out there if there are so many, if there are so many and they're so massive and appear to be an essential part of the universe? And finally, the Allah is that a judge must pass, must pass judgment based on what he sees with his eyes. Right. Do the new images from the new telescope prove that light is billions of years old? And could it be that the world wasn't created until a few thousand years ago, but the galaxies were created much earlier? Okay, a bunch of questions. Let me address them part, step by step. So firstly, the mere fact that they exist is only demonstrates God's vastness and greatness even more so. Not that we need a great large universe makes God larger, but it just demonstrates of the sheer enormity. I remember, interesting, the famous late physicist Richard Feynman, a Jewish man, brilliant, brilliant, especially in his capacity to take abstract theoretical physics and explain it in simple layman's terms. He had these analogies that simplified. It was deceptively, deceptively simple, but it captured most profound ideas. It's a lesson of its own. So he wrote, he writes, in one of his books, one of his introductions, that he was always believed in God. But then when he saw the vastness, the more he discovered the vastness of the universe and how much space there is, it began to, he began to question what, about God because what would it be necessary for? You build, let's say, a house. This is his analogy. And you have a living room, a large living room. So you can host people, you can have parties. But if the living room is so large that will never be filled by people, and more than that, no one will ever know how large it is, especially if it's expanding, it demonstrates simply a waste of space. Why would you do that? So, in his, so he basically began to question the very notion of God, because it doesn't seem efficient. When I read it, it was already impossible to reach, but I remember thinking I would have written him a letter. You learn a little chassidus, you come to learn, chassidus cites from Akedis Yitzchak, the Sefer, that there's two ways to know God. One is through Teva, one is through Nes. Through Nes, you learn about God's capacity to suspend, l'shadit, to suspend the laws of nature. That God is not bound by any structure. From Teva, we learn the power of God's consistency, lo yushbesu, lo yishanisi, this perpetual consistency, which we don't find. No human being can do something that is consistent as like the seasons or all the other aspects of nature that are so predictable. Everything we create has a glitch here, a glitch there. So what do you see from this? That you can learn from the very vastness, what you learn is about Ainsafe. God didn't just want to teach us about his limited. The world as we know it, where you see the efficiency of a living room and a dining room or different places, and the mineral, vegetable, animal, and human kingdoms in this world teach us about God's structure. But the vastness, the more vast it is, the more it teaches us about the infinitude of God's capacity to expand forever. Like we say, 
And one of them is complete expansion. So that itself teaches us something. The fact that we don't know about every corner, and we may never know, is part of the, the mystery, is part of the awe. It's like standing on the top of a mountain, and you see, wow, I never imagined the horizon to be so large. That itself evokes an element of love and reverence and awe. That's what I wanted to write then. So when you see these telescopes, on the contrary, they're teaching us about this infinite, infinite expansion, that even in a physical world, when there is no such thing as true infinity, everything has limits, it's still limitless limits, because it seems to be endless, in more galaxies and more galaxies and so on. As far as the earth, it still does not negate the fact that the human being was created on earth with free will, and a tater was given to us, and that classic sikh I alluded to you earlier, Shabbos Devarim, Tavshin Chavtes, Shabbos Chazen, this time of year, 1969, when the Rebbe spoke, is there life on other planets? So he said, going into the details, that according to one opinion, yes, according to another opinion, uh, possible, and, but he can't say it's life like it is on earth with his free will, because then you have to get into the thorny issues of a teda, there's only one teda, etc., etc., Point being is that, is that, um, that when we look at the universe and all its aspects, it teaches us, number one, this infinite, infinitude, but also this is not a contradiction. There's only one earth where we're the ones that are exploring. Even if we discover life elsewhere, but we're the ones that are discovering all of this, that tells you the, the word superiority may not be the right word, but the centrality of the human being. Because it is we that is discovering this. And we are in awe and of all this great massive mass and so on. I should add, even though it's not mentioned here, that what's also being discovered is that all this is called either dark matter or dark energy. That it's so dark we can't know about it. It was once understood the things that were bright were the reality of existence. Now we know that which illuminates is just a min- minuscule compared to the darkness, which only... It only amplifies the question. If it's dark, what is it revealing to us? But that's what it reveals. The helamatsmi in the language of Chassidus. It's revealing that, that infinite, constant sense of concealment that's beyond revelation, beyond expression, among the other things that we learn from it. As, as far about the age of the universe, look, I don't know one telescope, every telescope, whatever it discovers, you have to remember one thing. The world was created a mature universe. Even without telescopes, even without any instruments, if you and I were right now in Gan Eden, the day of creation of man, together with Adam and Chava, or you were Adam and Chava, what would you see around you? The world was created six days earlier. Every day had its creations. You come into a world, it's a world that's already functioning. It wasn't a world in, a work in progress. Everything was there. There was a sun, there was a moon, there were stars. There was vegetation, there were animals, there were fish, there were trees. So if you looked at a tree, a tree takes time to grow. So even without any instruments, you'd have to say, Father Madhavivan looked at this tree, said, well, how, how this tree seems to be 100 years old, 20 years old. But it wasn't, it was barely, two day, two, uh, barely three days old. So the world was created, a mature work, in, a, a work that was done. Even other Machava were created at 20 years old. They looked at stars in the sky. It takes a star, we know light years, to reach the light to reach the earth. So just by looking at a star, oh, the world must be millions of years old. But not if you understand that that was all God created a mature working, he didn't create a, 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 a baby that began to develop. He created a full functioning universe. So the universe was an old universe when it was created. Now you could ask why? The why perhaps is the reason because he wanted the purpose of, of existence to begin. He didn't want it to take millions of years or hundreds of years or thousands of years. Time to work. To serve and to create a a home for God and a home for the divine in this material world. He didn't want to wait for that. Yes, they had to wait 26 generations till the Tata, but all relatively within a short span of time. So the fact that a telescope discovers even further, greater vastness and stars that would take even more time to travel, all that was there in the beginning of creation. We're just seeing it now. And even if we're to establish that the universe is expanding, that's all part of it. God wants it to expand. 
And that's how he built it. So at the end of the day, there are no contradictions. But it's important to point out, remember, something that a lot of people make a mistake. The fact that we're not looking. Torah is not a book of science. Torah is not coming and offering proofs that the world is 5,782 years old. It states it as a fact. That's revelation. God told us that. Science has nothing but to look at observation. It looks at a star. That's millions of miles away. So a scientist who's not given this meseda or knows, doesn't know better. And that's his observation. So the Tate is not coming to disprove it. Tate is saying, however, we have other facts to contend, to contend with. And based on those facts, we say the world was created looking millions of years old. So it's not a proof. Science goes to, with a proof. And I've talked to many scientists about this. And when they hear that, they take a different, completely different perspective because they're always, is pitted, who's right, you or us? It's coming from different perspectives. Science is using its tools, and they may know what the Torah says, they may not. Torah is telling us this is what we were told. You can't prove that the world is 5,782 years old. As I told you, even on the sixth day, it didn't look like it was six days old. Okay. So there's much that science can teach us, but when it comes to the essence, science does not teach us right and wrong. It does not teach us what God wants us to do. It teaches how God created the world, the dynamics, the machine, how it works. But ultimately, it's the tailor that teaches us what to do with it. What's the purpose of it? Science can't tell you the purpose of existence. It can tell you this is what existence looks like. Here's how it functions. Here are the, the, here's the clockwork. Here are the dynamics that make it tick. The DNA, the cells, and so on. The atoms, the sub, subatomic particles. And together we come and have both the human effort of understanding God's mind in creation and what God's intentions are in that creation as, and, and purpose, as well as Torah teaches us the purpose of it all. Why? Why did it create it? Why are we supposed to use it? How do we elevate it? How do we fulfill the purpose of our lives? Okay, let's move from that to an uh, interesting question. I guess this is coming from Yud based Tammuz. I learned recently that when the Friedrich Rebbe was in prison, they took away his tefillin in order, for, in order to be nasty and hurtful to him, and he went on a hunger strike until they returned his tefillin. So here's the question. Can we do something similar to Hashem and declare a hunger strike until he keeps his promise and reveals Mashiach? So I read the question. I don't know if the writer means it tongue-in-cheek or not, but regardless, interesting question. The answer is obviously quite simple. No, the answer is no. Because that's not a tighter way to do things. Not to hunger, and definitely not a hunger strike. Comes a fast day, we're told, went to fast. But not just time to hunger. Person You have to protect your health. And that's not the way to get to God. Such a threat. The Friedrich Rebbe was dealing with um, human beings, or barely human beings, who mistreated him. And he put, put any pressure possible that he can to achieve what he wanted. Here we're talking about Hashem and God. And God told us how to, how to, how to uh, beseech him. Not through hunger strikes, through prayer, through tshuva, through crying out Mosai. Not a hunger strikes. That's the short answer. On a different note, someone asked this question. So I'm happy I'm able to address a bunch of new questions. What can I do about my addiction to TV? And just for the record, the questions, even though everything is Ashwacha Pratis, and they probably have a connection with each other, but they're also reflective of the vast diversity of people's interests and what lies in their mind. And I try to cover different angles and different dimensions of that, which I think is one of the reasons this program is quite a rich one, because it really covers the spectrum of different issues and challenges, whether it's astronomy, whether it's the, the three weeks, in this case now, this issue. So let's talk about this. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I have had a serious addiction for years that no ma matter what I do, I cannot overcome. And the challenge with this addiction is there are no programs and no support groups. I'm seriously addicted to TV. It consumes my free time, causes me to be less productive in every area of life, distances me from my Jewish and Hasidic values, and overall transforms me into someone I'm not proud of. Yet despite all this, I still find myself watching all the time. My challenge is that I cannot seem to find anything positive to replace it with. 
And when I cut it out of my life, I do not have a downtime pursuit. I've spoken to mashpias, tried different hobbies, and quit so many times, but I can't even count at this point. So many times that I can't even count at this point. I am so ashamed and hide it from my husband and children at best, as best I can, but I know they know. I'm a mother of two with the Mitzvah Shem, two more on the way in a few months. And I don't want this to be the example my children see and don't want this to be a person, with the, with, want this to be the person I am. The worst part is that I'm a teacher and I'm a shpia to other women and I feel every day that with this addiction, I'm living a lie, a hypocrite. How can I break this addiction? Four question marks. Okay, well... I respect and commend you for your honesty. I'm also humbled by the fact that everything you've tried, you're coming to me as like a last resort. I hope not. Um, But I will try my best to respond. Remember, firstly, that addiction, we're not born with, with any addiction, except in rare instances. You're born a beautiful soul in a body, comes into this world, God sends it, There's no TV, there's no internet, there's no drugs, there's no alcohol, there's no other addictions. That's who you essentially are. But then we wander off the reservation. Not overnight, takes time, different things. We get used to certain things. We We want to numb ourselves, we want to escape. And then before you know it, it's something you can't avoid. It becomes an addiction that you become dependent on. It's just the frame of mind, the way we should look at it. So we're not, by definition, addicts. There's no such thing as an addict. That's not your identity. Even though it's important to know if someone is and not to minimize and deny it, that's why you'll find the 12 steps that say, I am an addict. There, it's meant that you shouldn't go into denial and lie to yourself. But the thing, the important thing to qualify, you're not an addict fundamentally in the eyes of God, and your soul is not an addicted, and is not addicted to negative things. It's your life, your body. And yes, you need to know that because you want to counter it. You can't just say, oh, you know what, I I healed it. And then you just revert back to it, regress. But it's important to know because when you understand who you are, it's different than when you become identified. Because once you say, I'm an addict, okay, that's it. I'm an addict. What do you want me to do? Like the joke, the guy used to go into the bar and drink every night. Then he became violent and throw bottles and, and glasses and so on. So they told him, listen, my friend, you can't come here and behave this way. Go to rehab, get yourself straightened out, and then come back. So he went. He went for therapy, rehab. He comes back, and he asks for a drink. Another drink. Well, what happens now? He gets drunk and starts throwing glasses again. They said, so what, what, would you, what happened to the rehab? He says, they taught me. Now I don't feel guilty about it because I'm an addict, and that's that. I used to feel guilty. Obviously, that's not the goal. The goal is to understand So I would begin by this simple exercise. In the morning, say that, think about that you, God, have returned my neshama to me. We don't say God. And that this neshama is pure. And then it travels. Why does it need shmirah? That you protected in my being. Because in this world, all the paths are filled with danger. Whether it's the danger of one addiction or another addiction. Even if it's not addiction. So this is meant to just empower yourself to know who you are and what strengths are in your arsenal. Neshama, when it comes down, your neshama, my neshama, every neshama, was given all the strengths, Mashbi and also Mashbiya, was sated, was filled, saturated with all the powers and resources needed to overcome any challenge. Now I understand that's not enough because an addiction is an addiction. And especially in a moment of weakness, you, you gravitate back to the addiction. But it's important to know who you are. The next thing, God created the Yetzirah. God created it. It's not something we have to be ashamed of. What we have to, our challenge is to overcome it as much as we can. But as he explains in Tanya, the battle is a lifetime battle. Benini is someone that the Nefesh Abamis is always alive and kicking. He hasn't killed it. But he's subdued it. 
He's dis- disciplined it. He's controlled it. At least in thought, speech, and action. That's what we're looking for. So when you think of it that way, when you're faced with a challenge, ask yourself at that moment, what's happening is that there's a voice inside of you, your animal soul, that is now woken and testing you. So as I've heard from different mashpim, the goal is not cold turkey to change everything. Do it one step at a time. If one day you can stop yourself from watching television, in this case, that's an accomplishment. I don't care what happened the next day. I, don't, I, I do care. But you've accomplished something. If you can extend it a second day, great. So think of it in small steps. Small little victories. You don't have to win the marathon. And I think also the shame that comes with it, the embarrassment, is actually demoralizing. It doesn't always help, like the Alter Rebbe explains in Tanya, chapter 26, that when you're wrestling with an enemy, the psychological warfare is even more important because if you feel down, even if you're physically strong, you're not going to be able to fight, win. So not allow yourself to get demoralized and depressed and say, this is the battle I have. And it's a gift that God has given me. Because when I win this battle, even if it's one day, two days, you've achieved what he says, you draw down an energy that only refraining from something negative can, can draw down. And finally, I'll say, even though you alluded, to, you said it directly, it's critical to find a passion. I can assure you that if you're watching TV and suddenly you get a call from a school that your child has fallen down, God forbid, you're not going to say, oh, you know what, I'm in the middle of a show. You're going to run. Why? Because it's priorities. You need to find something that you really love doing. Love. And that's a, 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 another addiction, obviously, something positive. Even if it's not all day, but those moments will free you. And remember, all these things is, it's like tangled wires. Untangling something breeds more untangling. You don't have to do it all in one shot. So anything you can do to minimize this power by by being involved in something else is an achievement. And keep a journal, document what you did today, the next day. It's not going to be perfect. You're going to have setbacks. Don't be perturbed by setbacks because your Yetzirah, your animal soul is going to come for a full assault and, and convince you, hey, it's not so bad. But if it's bothering you enough to write to me about it, there's no question in my mind there's a motivation here. Will you be perfect? No, not necessarily. And at the end of the day, we can't beat ourselves up. I'm not going to start minimizing and say this addiction is worse or better than others. You know, you bothered by this addiction is bad enough. But, is, but, but you have to also do things in stride and not, not go ahead and beat yourself up too much because that's not going to help motivate. I hope these are some points that can be helpful. Obviously, without knowing the details, all the details, I'm speaking in more generic terms, there may be many other details by speaking to a mashpia that they can take what I've said and maybe tailor it and specifically connect it to something specific and so on. I've also seen people who are addicted to something, they become people who help others overcome their very addiction because they understand it. Maybe you should start a support group yourself. You know, maybe something that you can share ideas with others, tips they can share with you. And when together, that also creates a synergy that also has a lot of power in addressing issues like this. Okay. Another topic which is completely from a, from a different area altogether is the Mifsa the Rebbe established in Tovshin Mem Dalad about printing tanyas in all cities. So someone writes the question, what was the Rebbe's intention in printing tanyas in every possible location? When the Rebbe first announced the campaign for the printing of the tanyas in all cities where Jews live, Bachar made a shturim, a whole tumul, a whole, a whole uh, a campaign, and printed tanyas everywhere possible. This means many towns with very small Jewish communities officially had their tanyas printed by Bochum passing through long before the Jewish communities grew to their modern prominence. For example, Bochum came, students came to my hometown in some 40 years, some 40 years ago to print tanyas, before there were even shluchim in the general area. And now nobody knows where those tanyas are or what state they are in or even if they actually exist, because the number of tanyas get a number, but they don't 
quote number number, but they don't actually get printed for a variety of reasons. From my understanding, the Rebbe's kavona intention with the mitzvah, with the mitzvah, this campaign, was that people see a tanya printed in their hometown and be drawn to learn it. But if nobody knows where the tanyas are, then what is there to do except print new tanyas for the new generation of Jews living there? I have been speaking to Shluchim, telling them my idea about printing fresh tanyas for the town, and have surprisingly received some pushback that this wasn't the Rebbe's intention, that tanyas should be reprinted since it was never mentioned explicitly. I've even, I've even in the, I've seen that even in the printed tanyas list that tanyas have been reprinted in a number of places and institutions all over the world over the years, so there is definitely precedent. From my understanding, the Rebbe gave us his mitzvahs, his campaigns, and we should make that of them a mayanam gaber, an overpowering spring, spring flowing, not just a one and done checked the box goodbye. Could you speak to this idea about using our resources to take the mitzvahim to the next level? I'm speaking about printing tinies in particular, but this is a general question also versus sticking to the posh pshat of exactly what the Rebbe said. Thank you so much for your time and wisdom. I greatly enjoy learning from your classes and shiurim. Okay. Well, Bajrach Aparadis, I happen to be a little familiar. First of all, I wrote the Fabring and the Rebbe gave that directive and the Rebbe edited it quite extensively. Also, my uncle, Oliver Shalom, Shalom Jacobson, was the one that was appointed to be the, the central clearinghouse, giving, assigning different numbers so there shouldn't be confusion. So when the tinies are printed in one city, it has a different number, different edition than a different city. And I think he made a very big, big emphasis to make sure that they're printed and there shouldn't be duplicates. Now, not everybody listened necessarily listened. The Rebbe was very adamant about it. But it was always meant to be exactly that. There should be a record of every tiny that was printed. And every tiny was sent to the Rebbe's library. So there's a copy that should be of every tiny. So if you really want to find them, you'll find them all there. Whether they were properly disseminated for people to learn, that's a good question. That's not a contradiction. So the question about reprinting, I understand why there's pushback, because the Rebbe had said to do that, it's one thing. If the community there wants to reprint, they, all they have to do is get the number that they had and reprint. A reprint doesn't mean necessarily a new number. So you can get the edition, let's say edition 1200 in a city, wherever it may be, and then since we ran out of it, reprint it. I don't see any issue with that at all. I wouldn't make a new number because there's that, that, that number, that city has already been designated a number or that town. And I think the same thing with all the Miftsoyim. The general approach is absolutely, the Rebbe made two, 10 Miftsoyim. So we're not going to add an 11th or a 12th. But dissemination, it the sky's the limit. Until every man, after Bar Mitzvah and boy, puts on film, you haven't finished the job. And then there's every day putting on film. Same thing with Neshek for women. So the expansion is not in creating new time, it's reaching more people. It's called distribution. So by all means. Those are my uh, quick answers to these questions, to this question, and I want to finally read a follow-up, and then a question. Here we are. The follow-up goes like this. Dear Rabbi, I, read, I heard you read my second letter to you last week. I wanted to add some details. When I asked my great-aunt, Juji, or Joji, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, what her mother thought when she learned her daughter married an Arab. This is a, this is a letter I read last week, a very heart-wrenching letter. So this is a continuation. So when, what my, my mother, when she learned her daughter married an Arab, my, my mother, she answered, what she, when, she thought, what, when I asked her what she thought, so she answered, she was just happy that she was alive. They were more than secular, they were 100% assimilated. Never did Shabbos celebrate St. Nicholas with the maid, ate pork, looked at Yiddish with contempt. But they were sent to the camp nonetheless. Yeah. The Hungarian Jews were taken at the end of the war. My great aunt, 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 her husband, and my great grandparents were also were able to hide for a few months. They got arrested because the girl who was bringing them food sold them to the Germans. I watched the pianist by Polanski with my great aunt Joji. At one point I asked her if it was too hard to watch and she said nothing was harder than to live it. She told me the story about her cousin Ruth who was hidden by the maid while her parents were taken to Auschwitz. Joji said that for months after the liberation of the camps, Ruthie waited on the balcony for her parents to return. 
They never did. Three days after my great grandmother, after my grandmother passed away, on the second of February two thousand two, I felt the breath taking hold of me, and my mind switched one hundred eighty degrees. I decided to go and see the rabbi, like he suggested, and that is how my journey started. Although I know my grandmother was Jewish, I never knew it made me Jewish. At the time, Joji or Juji and my grand and grandmother's husband, Saul Cohn, was still alive. Saul taught me the the kima. They both passed away in 2006. I'm far away from being, I'm far from being religious, although I'm more religious than my grandmother and her family ever were. I don't know if I ever be, if I will ever be, you never know, but I'm definitely Jewish. It was a calling almost, a strong longing of the soul. Strangely, during my addictive years, I used to claim that I was kicked out of the Garden of Eden and I was searching for my way back. Also, I wanted to transmit the sacred heritage to my children so it would not die with me. My little one has her name, Eva, Chava. Time will tell if I succeeded or not. I'm praying. My family is the new anti-Semites, supposedly not against Jews, just against Israel. Funny that my mom and her sisters were all born in Haifa. When my mother married my father, my paternal grandmother said, finally some Jewish blood in the family. She was the only one to think it was a blessing. I miss my grandparents a lot. It feels good talking about them. Actually, I needed it. My grandmother's soul lives within me. I can feel it. Thank you again for reading my words and your time and your generosity. Well, thank you. And the words are meaningful. And I use this platform to share them because I believe they deserve a soul that's gone through challenges like this, deserves to be heard, even if there's no specific question. So let's stay at that. Finally, let's conclude. Since we're entering the three weeks, how does Chassidus explain the three weeks? So there's actually a mimer. Well, the Semach Tzedek refers to it, the three Shabbosim, and very briefly in the Rishim San Echa, the Rebbe talks about that. But what I wanted to address was a mimer, Lohoven Inyam Ashokosub Psikta. There's a Psikta, a Medrash, that Abhilo Paritsha wrote a whole mimer on, and apparently is built on the Semach Tzedek's mimerum, I think the Rebbe writes that explicitly, where the Psikta says, that there are Shiva Shtlosa de Paranusa. This is the, the, the three weeks of affliction due to the destruction of the temple from the 17th of Thomas to the 9th of Av. Then there are seven weeks, Shiva de Nechemta, seven weeks of consolation, and followed by Tarte de Tiyufta, two weeks of Tshuva. So in the sequence, we're talking here a total of 12 weeks. Talking about the Haftaris, that usually, the Haftaris usually is said, a, a, a chapter in the Nevi'im that is based, similar idea to what the Pasha discusses, but with exceptions. During these weeks, that the three weeks of Purunisa, we say the, the Haftaris about things that are connected to the destruction of the temple. The seven weeks, things that are connected to the consolation, the Nechama of the Shiva, the Nechemta, and then the two weeks from Rosh Hashanah through Yom Kippur, through Sukkot, we say two Shabbosim Avteira about Shuva. That's the theme. So the Rabbi Hill explains this, Apichsidis, that the three weeks is referring to Chabad, Moichim. Three is Chochmah Binadas. The seven weeks is referring to the seven emotions. And the two weeks of Shuva is referring to Keser, Keser Malchus, that the, se- the seven and the three, the ten, lead to. So let's just talk about the three weeks, and I will talk about the seven when we get to the, that part of the year, which will be after the three weeks. What, what's the connection? Churban Beis Moichin. Moichin is a revelation. Chabad. So he explains it with a moshal, a famous moshal that the Rebbe cites the early years. It's printed in Likud Tzichus Chelik Beis. And he says, a state and this is referring to this maimon. What's the Nikud, the point? That a teacher is teaching a student. So the flow of Moichin, of Chabad, is going from the teacher to student. As he's learning more and more, the teacher has a cheshek, has a passion to reveal to the student a completely new revelation of Moichin, of Chachman bin Adas. But it's so new that he can't just continue reading or teaching what he has been teaching, so he goes into a silence in order to prepare himself to teach this new revelation. Now the silence is really truly a stepping stone for greater revelation. But from the perspective of the student, he, the teacher has fallen silent. He's quiet. So the student can misinterpret that as being an abandonment. Like the famous example of the Magid, that the father hides from the child. 
in order for the child to elicit the child's ingenuity to find the father. But the, but the child can forget and think, oh, my father's abandoned me. So the three weeks is really meant to be a concealment of the moichin with the teachers preparing to build something much greater, Mashiach. So on the surface level, it's concealment, but it's really a concealment for something greater. That's how he explains the three weeks. And each week is Chachma, Bina, Das. And that will then lead to the revelation to the Midas, which come in the seven weeks of afterwards, the Siva de Nechemta, which we'll discuss, as I said, when we get there. So with that, what it means in practical terms for us, applying, applied chassidus, is to understand that concealment, like we discussed before, is not an end in itself. It's actually the beginning of a new revelation. And it's part of that revelation. The silence is necessary for the teacher to prepare and also to prepare the words to be able to reveal it to the student who is not yet necessarily ready to hear it. That's the lesson we learned from our period in time. Well, we should all be blessed. We've had enough three weeks. Right now, even before we enter the well, with full entry into the three weeks, and definitely before the nine days. And we should be Zeicha merit to the Gula Mitis Vashlema when all these days will become the greatest holidays, when we'll receive the light within the darkness, we'll see the words, the sounds within the silence. Everyone be well. We're here every week. My life is applied. Sundays, 8 to 9 p.m. Thank you very much. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.